electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Thanks so much. Welcome, everybody, to Overtime. I'm Scott Wapner. You just heard the bells. We are just getting started. In just a few minutes, I'll speak to Fundstrat's chief chartist, Mark Newton, whose new note attempts to answer the critical question for investors. Where is the bottom? We begin, though, with our talk of the tape, this relentless reset of your stocks, your money, and your expectations for where all of those might be heading in the weeks and months ahead. Let's ask Jim Labenthal. He is Sarity Partners chief equity strategist and member, of course, of the Halftime Investment Committee. Jimmy, it's good to see you. Boy, your optimism was certainly tested this week. So where do we go from here? Yeah, I, I do feel like I'm training for a mixed martial arts uh, competition here. But um, look, I, I think I think the obvious thing is we kind of bounce around here for a while. Uh, what's a while mean? It means probably a couple of weeks. Uh, we've got to get through the pre-announcement season for earnings, and then and then really see Scott because, as you know, and you and I debate, there's a big question about what earnings really are. The es- estimates on the macro level have hung in there and actually even gone up uh, week over week. And I know that defies a lot of belief. So we're going to have to see as the results come in uh, if the macro analysts are out of their minds or if actually the economy and corporate profits are a lot better than people are giving credit for. I will note that it seems like you've got negatives and positives, right? We get a, a pre-announcement from Target a few weeks ago. That was awful. This morning you get a pre-announcement from U.S. Steel. I mean, this is a hard asset, old line economy stock. Uh, but it was a pretty darn positive announcement. And, you know, when I think about economic growth, I think about steel. Problem uh, is, so we got to see how, as the results yeah, come the, in. The problem is, I mean, these earnings expectations or estimates, if you want to call them that, they don't, they don't just seem to defy belief. Um, they defy logic, right, Jim, given sort of where we are. You look at every economic metric that's been coming out. It's been weakening. Uh, there are real, real doubts about how long the strength of what feels like a pretty strong consumer, at least what was a strong consumer, can last, uh, given everything that's going on around them. Yes, so I'll acknowledge what you just said. The economic statistics have been coming in disappointing. But I would say not as disappointing as maybe the headlines would lead you to believe if I look at today's industrial production or Wednesday's retail sales. They did miss expectations, but only by a few tenths of a percentage point in each case. So it was not a dramatic, like, falling off a cliff. With regards to the heart of the economy, which is consumption and the consumer, ultimately that test is going to be met or failed Uh, by what jobs do. And I take some comfort not just from where initial jobless claims are, but where from continuing claims are, which is at or near a 50-year low. And that's indicating that there are a lot of job openings. So as people get laid off, and we're seeing the layoff announcements, there are plenty of job openings openings for them to go Mm -hmm. to. Ultimately, if that hangs in there, note I use the preposition if. Mm -hmm. If that hangs in there, this economy can do just fine. So you have... you, you have a big price target for the S&P still, 48.96 or, or thereabouts. Is, is, that, is that about right? That's correct, Scott. Okay. Um, now, let me, say, let me ask ahead. you this. Let me, let me ask you this, because it seems to me your whole case for that is predicated on your scenario playing out, that there will not, in fact, be a recession. I want you to listen to what Professor Siegel told me yesterday in overtime about that very question. We're in a recession. Uh, It's a mild recession. It's not an official recession. 
by the NBER, certainly not yet. But this first half is negative GDP growth, and it's ending on a slide. And, uh, you know, just when the Fed is, you know, the most aggressive because it waited far too long. Yeah, so throw your textbook definitions out. That's what the professor says. We're already in one, Jim. Yeah. You know, the professor was my professor 25 years ago, and he's an extraordinary man. He's an extraordinary investor. So I I differ with him at my peril, but indeed I do differ with him. Look, I see where the first quarter GDP number came in, and we know that it had a lot to do with inventory adjustments. I see where the Atlanta Fed GDP uh, estimate is for the second quarter. But here's the thing. If you're out and about in the economy, it does not feel like a recession. I don't care whether it's, you know, you're in an airport, you're on a highway, you're in a restaurant. You look at jobless statistics, you look at ISM surveys, it's more, you know, it feels like a a recession because we're all talking about it. And by the way, that can actually create a recession. But if you look at the numbers right now that add up to where the economy is, it just doesn't spell recession to me. Again, I'll close by saying Mm. I differ with the great, I mean great, Jeremy Siegel at my peril. That's fine. But what about if you're at the gas station uh, where the real numbers are making people feel like we're already in a recession or you're at the grocery store where you're spending so much of your paycheck that it feels like you don't have anything left after you go to the gas station and the grocery store. So for Americans right now, it does feel like we are in a recession. They don't care about the textbook definition either. And at some point that's going to take his toll. That will be the shoe that drops next. You know, you very well could be right, Scott. And listen, I'm learning to dance with the fact that I could be wrong on my positive outlook. But regarding gas and food, which obviously and very unfortunately is eating into consumers' paychecks and really hurting the people who can least afford it, what we have to remember is at the end of the day, if you have jobs, that's the big if, which right now people do have jobs and a lot of job opportunities, then they have the money with which to spend. And it actually doesn't matter if it's on gas and food or a new tie or a new tire or whatever. Um, It is the velocity of money moving through the economy that matters. That velocity goes down when people are unemployed. That's when they don't leave their house to actually travel and consume. Right now, the job statistics are pretty darn bright, and that's what's going to keep this economy going. Let's get um, to the the heart of the matter with this market. Um, Another rough week. 10 of 11 weeks down uh, for the S&P, 11 of 12 down. For the Dow, in terms of whether we've hit a bottom, Barclays today said no capitulation yet. 3,500 test of the S&P is possible. Michael Hartnett of Bank of America, who has been, I would say, negative uh, for a while, months, in fact, uh, has been the most correct strategist on the street. If you look at his calls and where stocks are now, he says we say uh, S&P 3,600, you nibble, 3,300, you bite. 3,000, you gorge. Do you think we are getting to those levels, either 33 or 3,000? Because let's just say we're at 36 now. Yeah, so we're, yeah, we're at 36 now. I don't think we have to. Now, look, I can't guarantee what the future is going to hold, but I don't think we have to. I think it really hinges on what the next couple of weeks in terms of pre-announcements look like. But what I want to say to everybody who's listening is you can go out there right now and identify high-quality companies and feel pretty confident that one, two, and three years from now, the purchases you make today are going to be fabulous purchases. Now, I'm talking about high-quality companies. I don't care whether it's Apple or J.P. Morgan or Home Depot. We can go down a long list. I'm not suggesting, and in fact, I'm discouraging investors 
investors from taking the real speculative plays. And I only use the I only use the term Kathy Wood stocks as a describer, as a descriptor, not to impugn her, but that's a description of a certain type of stock that trades at high multiples of sales. They may well be disruptive, mm-hmm. but right now you just can't value them and they could be very dangerous in this environment. Let me ask you but, this. Bottom line, bottom line, Scott, yeah. I'm sorry. You don't need to take that risk in those sorts of stocks. You've got such wonderful opportunities in the high quality positive cash flowing stocks uh, right now that you don't need to take the risk in those other stocks. Okay, you've led me to the place that I wanted to eventually get to anyway. And as you speak of these, um, your words, wonderful opportunities within the market, because I think people look at what's happened this week, they feel terrible, and they're afraid uh, that stocks are only going lower, perhaps as low as that 3,000 level that Hartnett talks about. And some have suggested that stocks could even fall out of bed much lower than that. I'm trying to glean from you and others who come on the network today. What's the sign? What do you look for before you decide to go after those fabulous opportunities that you just suggested exist? We're not going to get data points for a while. Do you wait for oil prices to come down to suggest that that may be a weight off of the shoulders of, of everybody? Do you wait for earnings and see how the guidance looks? What's the key? What's that thing that hits the switch for you that goes after those wonderful opportunities you say are there? Well, listen, this is a market that's trading on sentiment. So if you're trying to find the bottom and say, when is the best day? Uh, certainly, you have to, certainly you have to have sentiment turn. And how does that look? That looks like more than one day that's up in a row. That looks like a day where at least one day where you go up into the close. And frankly, we haven't had that in weeks. We haven't had it in weeks. Any rally is faded as we saw today. So the sentiment is clearly negative. But since actually picking a bottom is pretty rough and, you know, you're being generous and not bringing uh, my feet to the fire on some uh, incorrect calls I've made this year regarding that, what I would say and do say to clients is don't try to pick one day. Dollar cost average your way in. You can do it over a couple of weeks. You can do it over a couple of months. But parse out your purchases over the coming weeks. You do have to think, and I do, that the Fed's heavy lifting is going to be done over the next three months, right? Uh, We're at 150 to 175 on the Fed funds rate right now. I think it's reasonable that we'll be up another 150 basis points on that by the time the September meeting is over. This summer is probably a very good time to just space out your purchases throughout the summer. The, the, the key thing is, is whether that heavy lifting, maybe they're lifting an anvil and whether they drop it right on the head of the economy and break something. And that, and that is the critical worry. That's what the markets, I think, are trying to figure out. Let's broaden the conversation on that note with truest Keith Lerner, requisites Bryn Talkington, also a member of the Halftime Investment Committee. It's nice to have everybody with us. Keith, you think this is a little overdone at this point? I mean, I hear you. A lot of stocks appear oversold. That'll get you a ham sandwich and a bag of chips. You know, great to be with you, Scott. Um, listen, we've been saying our message this year is um, reduce risk, go more up in quality, be a bit more defensive. But on a short-term perspective, you know, I do think things are getting a little bit one-sided. Um, we are on a downward trend, but I think I think the risk reward, at least short-term, is somewhat improving. You know, one metric we look at, Scott, is just saying what's the percent of stocks above the 50-day moving average right now? That's two percent. Uh, we look back since 1990. We've only seen that happen nine other times. And historically, when you get that oversold, when you look at, let's say, three, six months later, and especially a year later, markets tend to rebound. Sometimes there is a further overshoot. But what we're saying is any further overshoot from this standpoint, we think will we'll, we'll recapture on that rebound. But that is in a context of a very choppy market. And again, we're not saying to be aggressive here. We're just saying at this point, this is not a place where we would be recommending reducing equities, especially that maybe the last point, Scott, is, you know, we're down about 23 percent. 
The median decline around the recession is 24. So you're basically baking that in. The average is around 29 percent. Of course, we could go more than that. But markets don't move in a straight line up and they don't move in a straight line down. So, again, I would be hesitant to be pressing shorts or becoming more aggressive selling at these levels, given how oversold and how one-sided sentiment has become. So, Bryn, the, the words I wrote at the top of the show today, relentless reset of your stocks, your money, and your expectations. You heard what Jim Labenthal said, um, a member of the investment committee like you. Uh, it doesn't appear as though he has fully reset uh, his stocks, his money, his expectations for where we go here. Is, is that correct? Should he? Does it mesh with your view? Well, I mean, Jim has a discrete basket of names, right? And so you have to, that, that's so important. He's not buying the broad market. He's buying these discrete ba- basket of names. So, so, so he could actually be wrong on the economy, but be right on his names because he has high quality names. As an asset allocator, when I'm looking at the whole portfolio of asset allocating, to me, it's like the, the trade has to, been, to be defensive all year. What I think the markets in this conundrum, and you and Jim were talking about jobs, is that the Fed actually wants unemployment to go higher. And so the Fed is like pressing on that. They're tightening financial conditions. And so they're, they're, they're actually wanting the consumer to get weaker because that's what happens when you raise rates and, which has never happened, at the same time, you're actually reducing the balance sheet. And so this really strong financial tightening that's now starting to happen globally I think we're in these uncharted waters. And so as, a, as an asset allocator, you know, we have, I've, I've talked about a lot of cover call strategies. Um, on the bond side, we have ultra short, we have no duration because we do want to stay invested though, right? Because if you just sit on the sidelines and to your point, what signals and wait for the signals, the signal's going to be when nobody wants to buy. Right. When Mark Haynes at the bottom, you know, in 2009, there was no positive signals. It was terrible out there. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's the signals when it gets really bad. And so I don't think actually it's that bad yet. It's felt really orderly and just like this daily grind. And I still when I look at multiples, whether it's the Nasdaq or the S&P, we're really just fair value. And to me, when you go into uncharted waters with what the Fed, as well as the other global central banks are doing, I think multiples need to be undervalued mm. in order to get a good bottom. Jim, you know, um, I think Bryn says something um, so fantastic for, for me to come back to you with is that you're not only fighting the Fed in a symbolic sense, if you if you want to say it that way, you're literally fighting them in a literal sense of what they have told you they want. What Bryn just said, they want unemployment to go up. They want the consumer to go down. So how can you fight that to get where you think we can go? Okay, so it's interesting. That's actually not what I've heard the Fed say. I've heard Chairman Powell say that he does not want to cause a recession. And I didn't say cause a recession. I didn't say cause a recession. But, but, okay, but, but in- by, by virtue of what they're doing, um, yep. They have articulated that, and that is the inevitable scenario of what they are doing. And I think that's Bryn's broader point. By simply raising rates to the degree they are at a time when the economy is, is slowing to the degree it seems to be, that that is the, the ultimate. So why fight it? The, 
the, the message, just to be clear, the message that I'm hearing from the Fed is they want job openings to go down to a level that more meets where unemployment is, um, which is to say uh, the job openings and labor turnover survey is at 11 million uh, job openings right now. That's versus five and a half million people unemployed. That ratio is the highest it's ever been, and it's causing wage inflation. The Fed would like to see those job openings come down, and possibly by being filled by layoffs in one industry, then being met by jobs being filled in another industry. That's why, you know, when we look at the layoffs that are going on at places like Carvana, Peloton, it's not, it shouldn't be freaking out the market because there are a lot of companies that want to hire people. It's getting that ratio down that the Fed is trying to work on. Um, Look, there's no question that the Fed is uh, an aggressive force against the markets right now, but one has to also acknowledge that the markets, at least the S&P 500, are off 21 percent, I think, maybe it's 22 percent, from the recent high. So there is is an effect that's already been felt uh, on on the stock market. And what's not being felt and not being properly reflected is economic activity that is yet to come from supply chain onshoring particularly uh, in 2023 and beyond. Yeah, because I'm looking at um, the reference to the comments from the Fed chair. Unemployment's going up and we're the Fed is good with it to get inflation down. Right. He's making the point that they need to cool the economy um, really by any means necessary. Yeah. So but the unemployment target that they have is four point one percent from three point six percent. I can't look at a 4.1% number and think that we're in some sort of extreme situation in the economy. Yes, yes, it's an increase in unemployment, uh, but it's from an unnaturally low level to begin with. 4.1% is not a heartbreaking level. That's, by the way, I mean, you and I have been through recessions, right? Those aren't the numbers that you feel in a recession. That's where you get to 7 8%. That's what a recession is. I mean, feels you're like. assuming that that's what they can manufacture, and that's the open question, Keith. Correct. So on that note, and I'll give you the last word, this idea of whether we solved anything this week, whether we feel like yesterday was any sort of capitulation move, because I think, you know, Melissa uh, Lee in the last hour was doing an interview with a a technician who suggested we haven't checked the boxes. Don't don't confuse a bare bounce with a longer lasting bottom. We just haven't met the conditions in any way that would suggest that. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think at this point, you're more likely set up for at least a bounce. It's hard to say that we've seen the bottom yet. You know, one thing, one missing ingredient, we are oversold and sentiment's one-sided, but even the last couple of weeks, we've seen inflows to stocks still. So that's not something you tend to see at, at the low, but I think there's enough to see at least some type of rally. And for investors who are over-allocated to equities, what we would say is use that balance to get your position in down somewhat. And the last point about like the unemployment rate, you know, we just did a study. The unemployment rate tends to bottom about a, a you know a year before recession. And with those Fed projections, you know, it's increasing the probability of, of recession. And the market's going to be forward looking and looking at those kind of weak economic trends as we look six to 12 months forward. And I think that's what the market is looking at right now. I've thrown out some targets that people are talking about as to whether the opportunities would even be better than what they present themselves to be now. If you think they are good now, um, Keith, give me a number. I mean, in your in your head, what makes sense to you? Thirty five hundred below that. I don't, I don't have to pin you down to an exact yeah, number, but no, is, is thirty five ish around the range you would you would think we, we could settle? 
Yeah, well, I, I, we look at this as risk reward as, as opposed to the exact number, but the average recession would bring you down to about 3,400. Um, so as we move like even 3,500, 3,400, if we get down there, I think that becomes a lot more attractive because the other thing, Scott, is you don't have to get the exact bottom. What's really important for viewers to know is once you hit a low, uh, you know, during a, uh, you know, a down market in a recession, the one-year move forward off that low is like a skyrocket. It's, it's, uh, it's about a 40% move. So that's the point is like even if you don't get the exact low, if you're going down there and you overshoot a bit, the, the return on the way up, um, you'll likely more than uh, likely recapture that. But again, I guess the last word, though, Scott, is I still think this is going to be a challenging market for the next several months because inflation is, is still going to be elevated and we're not going to get a kind of a capitulation from the Fed in order for this market to have big gains. We're going to really need to see inflation come down and the Fed pivot. And I just don't think that's going to happen over the next few months. All right. It's great to have everybody uh, with us. A happy Father's Day uh, to the dads. And uh, I'll see all of you soon. Bryn, thank you as well for being here. Jim, you'll be Thanks, back God. with me in just a little bit. Let's get to our Twitter question of the day. We want to know at what point on the S&P would you start buying stocks? 3,000? 3,500? Maybe now. You can head to at CNBC Overtime on Twitter. Vote. We'll bring you those results as we always do at the end of the show. Up next, energy is getting slammed. As you know, this week, the XLE is down more than 15 percent just since Monday. Dan Greenhouse has been pounding the table on that sector. We'll find out what he is doing after this week's slide, and we'll do that next in overtime. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back. We are back in overtime. You can check out the move in energy this week. It was the worst performing sector, falling 17 percent. Mike Santoli here with a closer look at energy slide. Mike? Yeah, Scott, trying to put it in perspective uh, relative to the huge surge we saw in energy stocks leading up to it. This is the XLE energy sector ETF relative to the S&P 500. So this just measures the outperformance recently of the XLE. Very, very sharp reversal, as you see up there on a relative basis. But, I mean, I guess you'd have to say that that general uptrend has not really been broken just yet. Down here, look how weak we were. We were just coming off a negative crude oil prices. So I think this is a positive in general. You'd probably Probably want to see people back away from the one major trade that has worked. It probably helps with inflation expectations. We'll see if it continues, even if it, you know, these companies still remain well positioned. Take a look at a few kind of commodity-related bellwethers. So Chevron been one of the best energy stocks, as we know. So here's Chevron against. This is a agricultural commodities food producer uh, ETF. This, of course, is Freeport McMoran. That's a copper proxy, and Barrick Gold. That's the symbol for a gold miner. So you 
you see all the rest of them had these good runs, and they've all rolled over. It's a one-year chart. So you see that big gap, energy versus all other types of stuff, of commodities. So again, this might also feed into this idea that the markets have not given up just yet on the idea of peak inflation, Scott. And the question, too, I mean, this is not out of the ordinary of what some have been calling for with money coming out of energy. The question is, does it go into something to help fuel a rally in some of the other areas that were beaten down at the expense of oil going up? That's going to be a a, a key question, Mike. We'll go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, you know, I would say maybe. I don't think that's really what's happening right now. I think it's a lot of profit taking and people just having losses elsewhere. Also, remember, again, even after the run, energy only 5% of the S&P. It's not clear uh, that money can carry the rest of yeah. the market. No, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. It's, it's a matter yeah. of whether, you know, some of those profits are sitting there in cash waiting to go into something else. I'll see you later in uh, Santoli's yep. last word. Let's bring in Dan Greenhouse, chief strategist at Solus. He's been bullish on the energy sector. It's good to see you, uh, Dan. Welcome. And I I think the last time we had a conversation, which was maybe less than a week ago, you suggested that you hadn't done anything to your uh, energy holdings. Now what? Yeah, uh, I mean, listen, our view is is structural in nature, not, um, you know, favoring it versus other sectors in the market, let's say. And then the, the views that we hold are not particularly out of consensus at this point, although they might have been when we sort of started taking a look at the sector. And, and it, it was really predicated on the low levels of inventories, which remain in place today. Um, the reduced CapEx budgets on the part of, of the majors and, and the minors uh, and the investor pressure against uh, doing uh, sort of a CapEx that exceeds your, your, your cash flow. And that, that nothing has, has more or less changed on that front. Um, even if you wanted to drill more right now, you've got expensive labor. You've got, uh, uh, the, first of all, you've got to find the labor. And if you do, it's expensive. The materials are more expensive. And the overriding ESG theme is really what started this whole conversation for, for a lot of investors such as ourselves in the sense that, that traditional investors were just shying away from the space, which opened up valuation dislocations. Uh, and, and that ESG focus, if you will, or, or lack of focus on the space also remains in place today. So listen, it was a bad week. There's no doubt about it. Um, but those structural factors are in play and, and probably provide support. Uh, to the commodity beyond what might normally be expected in this type of environment. Well, see, that's an interesting um, point you make because, and I know this is going to sound controversial, and it's not me making this point, uh, but there's a gentleman by the name of Tom Fitzpatrick over at City who put forth uh, a thought today that his headline of a note is, is oil about to spoil the narrative in the short term? He is talking about WTI uh, going down to 86 to 93, uh, and that that would be about, you know, changing the short-term landscape potential of the market. I'm wondering, I guess that would lead me to ask you, how tied to the overall market performance is elevated oil? And if oil does have a sizable pullback, does that open the doors for a broader rally in stocks? Yes. So I'd answer that two ways. First, with respect to the sector, I think our view is that that oil can come down and the equities and the, and the credits don't necessarily need to see a similar uh, decline, if you will. I, for starters, a lot of the names are not incorporating oil at current levels. You've got the geopolitical risk premium and another number of other things at play. So, so even if you fell as we have, it doesn't actually imply, although that's what's happening, that all the equities need to come down and the credits need to widen out. So um, in, a, in a structural sense, we, we still believe that. But for the broader market, I, I think you're, you're, you hit the nail on the head. And I think in your conversation just now with Jim Labenthal, you're talking about what are the types of things that the market needs to see. 
And as a starting point, the answer is lower gasoline prices and lower oil prices. Because if you're if you're looking for the Fed to give you anything resembling a white flag, you're not doing anything until some of these commodities start coming down. Because for the average person on the street, inflation, quote unquote, is gasoline uh, at the pump and and commodities and, and I'm sorry, and, and food at the, at the supermarket. And so you've got to start seeing some relief on that front before the Fed can do anything really uh, in terms of, of taking its foot off the brake. So you were with me just prior to the, the CPI print a, a week ago when you suggested that stocks could bounce up to mid 4000s, what you said. Um, obviously, the CPI upset all of that. The question is, when you look at the market now, post Fed, how does it set up for the next week or so? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the next week. And my point about the about the mid four thousands was that was that's traditionally the type of bear market rallies that you have. They go up, call it ten percent, maybe twelve percent, and that that would have put you in that level. But but obviously the CPI number, which came out shortly thereafter, as you said, spoiled the party. Um, in in a larger sense, uh, you know, you and I have been talking about this for quite some time. Investors need to deal with the reality that the the Fed put is dead, so to speak. Uh, and that's not unimportant considering its importance over the last 15 years. And the overwhelming likely outcome of what they're doing is going to be negative for risk assets and probably more so. That said, you've done a lot of the work already. And I think you talked about this in the last segment as well. The multiples down 40 percent or something. Obviously, we haven't seen earnings come down. But a 40 percent drop in your forward earnings multiple for the market as a whole is a very substantial decline uh, that, that goes a long way to correcting some of the excesses that occurred in the post COVID environment. Um, earnings are going to come down. We know that. X Energy, they have already started to do so, at least for this year. Um, but that multiple drop gives you some cushion uh, going forward to think about what the potential downside is from here. Is this all about, and lastly, too late and too much from the Fed? They waited too long and now they're going to do too much? I mean, they have made several mistakes. Uh, I'm not alone in that belief. I think uh, even even at the time, let alone in retrospect, you knew there was mistakes being made. Uh, and and again, th- these are human beings doing their best. Uh, but but the odds that they thread this needle just remain exceedingly low. I wish them the best. Uh, but as investors, you have to plan for the likely outcomes. What's your expected value? And your expected value is that this is just not going to end well. And, and that's what you see in risk assets already. Yeah. Good weekend to you. Happy Father's Day as well. It's Dan Greenhouse. We'll you see too, you soon. sir. Thank you. It's time for a CNBC News update with Kelly Evans. Hey, Kel. Hi, Scott. Hi, everybody. And good evening from the news on CNBC. Here's what's happening. The death toll in last night's Alabama church shooting is now three. As mourners gathered for a prayer vigil today, authorities said an 84-year-old woman who was injured last night died today. A 71-year-old man is in custody. Julian Assange's wife is vowing to use every waking hour to fight her husband's extradition to the United States using every available avenue. Stella Assange told reporters Assange said he would kill himself if he's sent to the U.S. to face espionage charges. The U.K. approved his extradition today. And as Britain suffered through a massive heat wave, Kate Middleton and Prince William appeared at the annual Royal Ascot horse race. With temperatures soaring into the 90s, men were allowed to remove their jackets and ties as the event's organizers Relax the usual strict dress code. And tonight on the news, right after Jim Cramer, I'll be filling in for Shepard Smith at 7 Eastern. We will look at how mortgage rates today compare with a decade ago when millions of homes went into foreclosure. Scott, back to you. Not the jackets and ties, Kelly. <laughs> Not the jackets and ties. 
We'll see you tonight. Still a hat. All right, that's Kelly Evans joining us. Up next, a bold call from one top technician. What fun strats Mark Newton is seeing in the charts that could be a bullish signal for your portfolio. We're back right after this in overtime. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, the Dow closing down for the 11th week out of 12. It's never happened before, but the current washout could be nearing capitulation. That's what Fundstrat's head of technical strategy, Mark Newton, says. He joins us now. It's nice to see you again. Thank you, Scott. Great Man, to be back. Th- this market has been hard to keep up with, I know, for you as well, because it surprised you in the, the, the downside this week and the magnitude of it. Yeah, 100 percent. Look, it's always much easier to pick bottoms within uptrends than after a market's been down 25 to 30 percent. And so you really just have to pick spots coinciding with, uh, you know, meaningful changes in sentiment and and momentum and breadth and and cycles. And so a lot of that suggests that we are, in fact, getting close to an area where stocks can finally have a more meaningful rally. You know, it's interesting you say that because I referenced uh, a conversation that I heard Melissa have last hour with uh, Chris Verone, who suggested that we haven't met a lot of the uh, conditions that are required to declare a bottoms close and not to confuse that with another bear market bounce. How how would you respond to that? There are just simply so many things we haven't checked off yet. Well, I would agree that that this year is very different than 2020. Uh, However, when you look at things like the percentage of stocks above their 50-day moving averages, it is now down to 2%. That certainly was present back in 2016 and 2018. Uh, We have finally started to see some evidence of a little bit of VIX backwardation, although it's not at levels that I think are probably important just yet. Um, You know, there's 70% of stocks now that are down more than 20% off their highs. So, you know, any given year when the market's down 20 percent, uh, the odds certainly are in your favor to try to take a stab at trying to buy for a rebound. Uh, but it's much, much different, you know, in saying that is it a bottom versus the bottom and whether it's going to be a recession with a capital R versus a small R. And, and really, none of us know the question to that. But, you know, I think it's a great risk reward when I start to see some evidence of equity put to call getting close to one, which was near what we saw in March 2020. Um Obviously, some evidence this past week of a little bit of oversized selling, that meaning the trend or the arms index showed two readings of over 3.5. So some big, big selling on the downside. And that came specifically from a lot of groups that had not been going down recently, like energy all of a sudden and utilities. And, you know, these starting to join technology on the downside, I think, is a meaningful 
change in character for this market that investors should pay attention to. When do you make a more definitive statement and what causes you to do so? What's the level that makes sense to you in your mind? Well, look, technical analysis is all about price action. And and while, you know, myself or anybody could say we're getting close, you know, we need to see markets go from a downtrend to starting to make higher highs and higher lows. And unfortunately, you know, there's no way to catch the bottom of that. That's going to take a movement over 4,200. So I have some cycles that I suggest that we're going to bottom towards the end of June, you know, towards the Russell rebalance, uh, potentially as early as next week. And I think a couple of things are important. One is that we seem to be getting close to a time when yields and also the dollar should peak out. And those are important because times when the dollar is rising rapidly happened in 2000, 2001, 2008, also 2014. Those proved to be difficult for the market. So if growth starts to slow meaningfully and we're seeing evidence of copper breaking down substantially this week in a way that the dollar starts to roll over, and I think that might be a few weeks away. And the 30-year has really peaked out right near 2018 highs, and we saw evidence today of technology outperforming as yields drop. So that's the key for investors. Watch when yields and the dollar start to roll over. Growth should start to act better. You look at FANG stocks this week, You know, stocks like Apple, Amazon, Netflix, they're only down about 3 to 5%, much better than the overall average. So Seeing that outperformance in some of these high growth technology and discretionary names should be very important to the industry. So, you know, I, I, it's tough to say we're at the bottom. I still think we're probably going to 3,500 to 3,600 over the next couple of weeks. But I am much more willing to take a stand and say I'll buy here and think that indices are higher within three to four months. Mm-hmm. It's funny, as you were saying that and before you got to Apple, I was looking at Apple on my screen at 13156 and wondering if that's a sign of strength or of a sign of something that's yet to come. And we're going to find out. Mark, I appreciate it. That's Mark Newton of Fundstrat. Thank you, Scott. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you as well. I'll talk to you soon. Still ahead, the staggering stats from one roller coaster week. Christina Partsinovelos is standing by with our rapid recap. Christina? I've got some quiz material for this crazy week. Which tech sector took the brunt of this week's sell-off on the NASDAQ? And another company just hit its lowest point since going public seven years ago. Hint, it's the oldest dating site in the world. Do you know the answer? Stay tuned. We're back in overtime on a Friday. Let's get right to Christina Partsendovelos with your rapid recap. Hi, Christina. TGIF. We got some green on the board, but it still wasn't enough. The Nasdaq was almost 5% lower on the weekend. It's 10th negative week in the past 11. Today was busy, though. 18.6 billion shares traded across all indices on pace for the highest volume day since March 18th, which was the previous triple witching day. That's when expirations of options futures and options contracts all happen on the exact same day. Switching gears, let's talk about some big movers. Cancer-focused biotech Seagen was the big winner this week, up 18% on the NASDAQ on reports that Merck is interested in, in acquiring it, followed by JD.com. You can see up 6% this week, and JD.com is possibly exploring an expansion into food delivery. And then you've got several other bio winners like Regeneron and Biogen. You can see they're climbing higher or climbed higher on the week, past tense. But it's the chip space. That was the first question I asked before the break that got hit hard this week. AMD and Marvell down 13%. It's the worst week for Marvell since 2015. Other notable movers, or just one, that would be Match.com. That was the second question I asked you. Match.com is traded or traded at its all-time low back since its IPO in November 2015. And lastly, we have some late afternoon news. Starbucks, head of North America, will be leaving the company after 17 years. 
And this is going to happen at the end of the month. Uh, uh, the, this head of North America is one of the key Starbucks executives responsible for handling the expanding of Union Drive among baristas. She will be replaced by the current head of the Asia Pacific business. Starbucks moving 1.3%. And that is not after hours, so never mind. <laughs> All right, Christina, have a great weekend. You too. All right, we'll see you on the other side of that. Up next, why today's pop in U.S. Steel could be a big win for one of Jim Labenthal's top holdings. He's back with us next in Halftime Overtime. In today's Halftime Overtime, as the S&P 500 closes out its worst week since March of 2020, we're back now with Jim Labenthal to take a closer look at some of the marquee names in his portfolio. Wanted to get an update, really, Jim, on where you stand. Um, Tough for cyclicals, obviously. Cleveland Cliffs down 13% this week. Greenbrier down 7.5%. Kinder Morgan down because of what's going on in energy. Why don't we start there with those? What are your thoughts today? Yeah, sure. And the overarching comment that I'm going to make, it's apropos of the earlier comments, is that the numbers and the results from the individual companies are indicating something very different than what the market overall is saying, uh, in particular about economic activity. And, and that comment I just made is writ large in U.S. Steel today, which pre-announced uh, record results for this quarter. So, you know, here we are in the heart of what seems a maelstrom of negative economic news and negative economic sentiment. And here's U.S. Steel pumping out uh, iron and steel at, at a record pace. Um, also, by the way, also important, they're buying back shares. Okay, so they bought $320 million back of, uh, dollars worth of uh, shares this quarter. That's about 6% of their market cap right now. And I think that's emblematic of what stocks in general should be doing. I don't care if it's U.S. Steel, Cleveland Cliffs, of course, a competitor in which should be feeling the same effects, or an, or an Apple or a Google. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're giving much credit to share buybacks. In terms of Cleveland Cliffs, though, I do want to say this. Second quarter earnings estimates have been coming down over the last couple of months. That really is in opposition to what U.S. Steel just told us, and it's also in opposition to what the company, led by Lorenzo Gonçalves, who I know you know, uh, has told us, which is that they're putting up records this year. And I think we can believe it based on fixed price uh, and fixed volume contracts that they have. Okay. Now, that's just one example, Scott, and we can go through more. You tell me what you want to talk about, but the company results are pretty darn good. I want to just note the fact, and look, I mean, it's been a rough week for everybody. The market was down so much that, uh, you know, I'm not trying to single out the fact that you've got a loss, 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 loss. General Motors, Qualcomm, Alaska all hit new 52-week lows um, just today. If you have one of those three that you're most concerned about against GM, Qualcomm, or Alaska, which one is it? Uh, well, Jeez, you know, I'm not really concerned about any of them, but okay, okay. Uh, you know, General Motors, you do have to wonder, why is it trading so badly? I mean, I'm not looking at the estimates right now, but it's probably five times earning. It's probably one times book value. Um, you know, these guys should be generating record cash flows. I know production volume is down, but prices are up, up, up. Um, I think what we really need to see from them is going back to what I said. They need to buy back shares. They really do. Mary Barra is being very coy about redistributing shareholders' uh, cash back to them. And I understand that she wants to invest in the electric vehicle business. But I think it's time to take a stand uh, on the balance sheet and distribute some shareholder capital back to us. Having said that, Scott, I'm answering your question. I'm really not that worried about General Motors okay. because you know what? People need cars. We're driving like crazy. They're wearing out. We need new cars. All right. Jimmy, thank you. Thanks for sticking around on this Friday. We'll see you soon. That's Jim Labenthal. Still ahead, the next market catalyst to watch. One money manager is going to tell us what's on his radar. We'll do it next. It's time for our two-minute drill. With us today is Advisors Capital Management CIO Chuck Lieberman. It's good to see you 
on this Friday. Uh, your view first on the market. Where are we going from here? Uh, hard to say, but I think uh, the markets uh, reacted excessively to uh, the news that the Fed is tightening policy. So I think uh, current valuations are extremely attractive. I'd still say uh, short on the bond market. I, I'd keep my duration there short. Okay, so if uh, we've got some attractive stocks to, to look at, let's talk about a few that you like. Energy transfer is uh, number one. Let's do that first. ET. Right. So here's a stock that uh, uh, has an 80 cent dividend, stock price at 10, so an 8% yield. Free cash flow is now over $2 billion, $2.2 billion. Uh, they reduced their dividend a couple of years ago to impair, to improve the balance sheet. They succeeded. Now the leverage ratio is down about 4.0. So the balance sheet is healthy. They're going to be swimming in cash if they don't do anything. And they are likely to do something. They're likely to increase the distribution or start buying back stock. They do have a large project going, Lake Charles. That's an LNG facility to export LNG. Uh, they've already got contracts to sell 6 million tons a year. They probably want 10 before they give a, a green light to the project. But once they get that, they'll probably also sell off mm. large chunks of that project. All right. Chuck, I got to run. Be well. We'll see you soon. That's Chuck Lieberman joining us there. Up next, it's Santoli's last word. To the results now of our Twitter question, we asked, at what point on the S&P would you start buying? 47% of you said, I'm buying right now. All right. 19% said 3,500. 34 said 3,000. So 47% wins. I am buying stocks right now is what you said. Let's get to Mike Santoli for his last word. Does that surprise you, Mike? I wouldn't say an outright surprise. I think it almost is a little bit reassuring that more than half of everyone said they want the stock market to be lower before they start buying. So, you know, if we're looking for contrarian sentiment signals, that's not a bad one. Um, I do think down 24 percent on the S&P in less than six months. Uh, it has people both wanting to, to, to you know, do some buying, but also fearful of the force of this downtrend. I think that's where everybody is right now. It's worth recalling we came into this week thinking maybe it was starting to get a little bit disorderly and bad enough uh, that you could start to say uh, maybe we're, we're, we're kind of coming to this climactic point in this sell-off. Clearly was not the case. A failed retest. Remember, we were at 3,900 a week ago. Uh, we were trying to retest that 38-something level miserably failed. And here we are today. The market kind of gets its feet under it, sort of, in the 36s. And we're saying, OK, maybe uh, we have some calm right here. Big question to me is, did we see, for the time being, peak stagflation panic this week? Because that seemed to be just a huge crescendo of fear, two-sided inflation and growth uh, coming under question. And we've seen indications with energy going down, yields coming in, stock market no longer you know, going to zero, uh, maybe we, uh, we, we kind of burned out that energy for the moment. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, due for a bounce, right? Uh, so many different things no suggest doubt. we are, uh, which means nothing <laughs> in the end. Well, that's right. Yeah. No, it doesn't mean much of anything. Um, it means that the preconditions are there. You, extremes can always get more extreme. But if you look at all the studies of these types of conditions, if you dial it out, you know, six months, 12 months, in most cases, it paid to be a net buyer. The cases when it didn't pay were those multi-year mm. bear markets that really just kept spiraling lower in 2002, uh, 2008, So uh, that's your call right now. Yeah. Is uh, are we going to go into a bad recession uh, or not? Yeah. I mean, I guess we're going to watch oil uh, closely as well. You know, the, we just don't get earnings for, sure. for a while. We don't get more inflation reads for a while. 
We're going to be pinned on the things we can see right in front of us every day. Mike, uh, happy Father's Day to you. Yeah. Have a great weekend. All right, same to you. Thank I'll you. see you soon. Thank you. All right, that's Mike Santoli. Let's go to Fast Money right now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.